Are you a Stuff to Blow Your Mind fan? Are you a New Yorker? Do you plan to attend this year's New York Comic Con? If so, then you've got to check out our exclusive live show, NYCC Presents Stuff to Blow Your Mind Live Stranger Science. Join all three of us as we record a live podcast about the exciting science and tantalizing pseudoscience underlying the hit Netflix show Stranger Things. It all goes down Friday, October 6th from 7 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. at the Hudson Mercantile in Manhattan. Stuff You Missed in History Class has a show right before us, so you can really double down. Learn more and buy your tickets today at NewYorkComicCon.com slash NYCC hyphen presents. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I've got a question. Hit me. How often do you have this experience of finding out one subtle way that somebody is like you and it's suddenly changing your whole attitude toward them? So you're talking to somebody new you haven't met. Uh, before, you know, getting to know somebody who's been a, a, a an acquaintance and you find out that they really like one movie that you like or they really or they've traveled to one place you've traveled to or something like this. And suddenly your brain just unlocks. Yeah. And you say, oh, OK, we're cool now. Yeah, I, I encountered this a lot. You know, there'll be um, I tend to be a little, uh, you know, distrusting of new people. And, uh, and then sometimes you, you know, you get to talking to them a little bit or you check out their social media activity or something and you realize, hey, they, they really like this film or they, they really like this artist that, uh, not many of us uh, are into or they're into this, uh, this other kind of niche thing that I love. And they're, and then you, you, you sort of give them the benefit of a doubt, uh, based on that information. You're like, well, they're, they're probably pretty good. They're probably pretty cool. Like maybe I should talk to them a little bit more. What else are they into that I like? But why Why is that? I mean, why is it that just using like a, a shared favorite movie, for example, mm-hmm. like what basis do you have for thinking that somebody who likes the same movie you like is a good person? Well, it, it, it falls apart under the scrutiny of other things because – for instance, uh, I'll, I'll use Tool as an example. Uh, Tool is, is one of my my, my favorite bands, and, uh-huh. uh, and they're a band I loved in in high school, and I've never I've never stopped loving. There have been a lot of bands that uh, and a lot of uh, musical styles that have sort of come and gone that I'll rediscover and and or that I'll hate for a little while, but but I've always liked Tool. So what you're saying is the best rubric for discovering whether a person is good or not is do they like Tool. Yes and no. So, for instance, here at work, uh, Nathan, our, uh, our our social media guru, uh, shortly after he started, he saw that I had some uh, some tool memorabilia at my desk, uh-huh. and we instantly struck up conversation about it, and that was like our initial, uh, uh, you know, bonding uh, moment. Our, yeah. uh, the, the fact that we both like this group. On the other hand, I've gone to enough tool concerts. To witness people that are also fans of Tool and sometimes interact with them, where I end up getting a bit judgy, and I think to myself, "Well, there's no, there's no way that they are appreciating this music on the same level that I am." <laughs> so, uh, it, it can kind of cut both ways. You can be very choosy about uh, about how you feel uh, regarding other people's appreciation of your stuff. But ideally, it would mean that if if someone else is into something 
that, that, that you dig, then they're, they're going to be into some of the same ideas, some of the same values, some of the same, you know, aesthetic qualities, what have you, mm-hmm. that, that there's going to be more than just this one thing that lines up between the two of you. Right, but you're using that one little detail, that one tiny thing as some kind of like totem. It's this one, it's this signifier, mm-hmm. this tiny flag flying above their head that you have decided for whatever reason is good enough evidence to open yourself up to this person and, and essentially give them a fair shake yeah. that you might not give to any other stranger. Exactly. I've caught myself doing the same thing, too, even though I realize it makes no sense. I mean, <laughs> I, I think generally you, you might be able to make some kind of case that in some cases shared aesthetics or shared values, uh, you know, that uh, if, if you like the same movie as somebody, it might embody some kinds of values or intellectual predispositions that you would find in common with other people who tend to like it. But a lot of times that's not the case. I don't know. I mean, I love Blade Runner, but there are probably a lot of people who love Blade Runner who are just absolute vampires. (laughs) You're saying they don't appreciate it on the same level as you do. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's it. I wonder if you don't appreciate it on the same level I do. I don't know. I've I've actually spoken about this a little bit. My my thoughts on Blade Runner are mixed, Uh, but I do do love Blade Runner. So today we're going to be talking about a hypothesis in genetics and genomics that is going to be a kind of weird analogy to the personality test that we've just been discussing, and it's the concept of green beard genes or the green beard effect. Now, the the sad news is that this episode does not really deal with actual green beards. If you're looking for, if you go, if you're coming into this expecting an episode on a weird genetic anomaly that makes people grow green beards or say a famous pirate with a green beard, um, you're going to be disappointed on those counts. But the but the underlying science we're going to discuss here in the genetics is pretty amazing and pretty fascinating. Now, I wanted to come up with the backstory of the pirate green beard, <laughs> but I couldn't think of what it is. What It's like he's got algae in there or something. He just yeah. never cleans his beard. Yeah, you're just um, – I'm guessing he probably has like really green teeth as well, you know, and it's just maybe he eats a lot of um, of plant matter and it just kind of drills down in his unwashed beard. But you know, this does bring if there was a, if there was a pirate with a green beard mm-hmm. and he met another pirate with a green beard, perhaps he would have this effect. He would say, "Look, there is another pirate who shares my aesthetic qualities, perhaps my diet. Uh maybe we have more <laughs> my, in common." My thoughts on hygiene. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so the name of the green beard hypothesis, which we will explain, comes to us from Richard Dawkins based on an example he used to illustrate the concept in his 1976 book, The Selfish Gene. But the idea goes back to the influential English biologist of the 20th century, W.D. Hamilton. Um, and so the idea arises in the context of a question about explaining how biology creates social behavior. Now, this is one of the biggest, most difficult questions in biology, right? So humans and other animals display these complex things like culture, like aesthetic preferences, taste, uh, social behavior, all these things that are complicated and have all these weird semi-coded rules. 
and we know at some level must be at least semi-dictated by genetic predispositions, but it's hard to know what parts of culture and behavior are genetic and what parts are just happenstances uh, that, you know, that, that arise naturally and somewhat randomly. Well, we have all these levels of cognition and culture that are kind of an illusion uh, and, and, it, and they're, they're overriding the biology. But since we are the illusion, it's hard to it's, it's often hard for us to really think about uh, it in terms of underlying biological properties. Yeah. So let, let's explore this question, th- this problem with explaining social behavior through biology. So we all know that species arise from the propagation of self-replicating molecules like DNA. The fundamental units of heredity in DNA are genes. These are the the, the parts of your DNA that do something that are inherited from your parents. And because genes make copies of themselves, we find some of the same genes spread out across many different organisms in the same gene pool. Now, obviously, genes that cause an organism to die immediately at birth become less numerous and eventually disappear. Genes that help an organism survive and produce more offspring become more numerous in the gene pool. These are the fundamentals of evolution by natural selection. This is basic stuff. We we know it up to this point. But here's a question. Why would an organism produced by this process that arises out of evolution by natural selection ever display behaviors that we would call selfless or generous or altruistic? For example, things like sharing food with another organism or defending another organism in a fight. Now, I I do want to heavily qualify that by saying I think it's probably not hard to explain why humans in particular are altruistic, because after all, there appear to be a lot of ways in which our complex brains can generate motivation for behaviors that run contrary to our genetic fitness. And the simplest example, one of thousands, would be celibacy, Mm -hmm. whether for religious reasons or philosophical reasons or simply out of personal preference. Some people voluntarily choose never to have sexual relationships. And this runs absolutely counter to our genetic programming. Uh, another more common example would be the use of contraception. Many people who are sexually active still choose to have no children or choose to have far fewer children than they technically could for a variety of reasons. So obviously there are some ways in which the complex human brain has acquired the capacity to override the genes that programmed it. Well, I think one one example that comes to mind is, say, for instance, my own son uh, is adopted and so he is not my biological offspring. Right. But he he fulfills all the, the, the needs and desires that uh, – that I that I have as a human for for offspring for a son. Right, your genes don't care about him, but you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's there in your brain. It's there in your personality. So if you were only wondering about humans, it might not be so hard to explain why we would share scarce resources with a stranger or risk our own safety to intervene in somebody else's defense or any number of other selfless acts. We're smart enough to recognize maybe philosophical or religious reasons why we think we should help other people and override those selfish instincts to act on those reasons. Or if you look at it from another angle, maybe the more cynical person would say, well, our complex language-obsessed brains are highly vulnerable to memes that have the power to override the optimization of our genetic fitness. Either way, human mentality appears to be fairly unique on Earth, and it can account for behavior that you wouldn't expect to find in other animals. But 
altruism isn't only present in human beings with their religions and moral philosophy and complex cognition. Altruism seems to be robustly observed in other animals from like complex mammals all the way down to insects, right? Yeah, yeah. We have we have a, a few, uh, I think, uh, very illustrative examples here to run through. Here's a crazy one. Vampire bats will regurgitate blood for other bats who were unable to find a meal, sacrificing their own immediate nutrition to keep another bat in their community from starving. And this has been documented since it was discovered in the 1980s by a biologist named Gerald Wilkinson. And that that's no small feat because these bats are uh, sort of operating constantly near the edge of starvation. As we've talked about Mm -hmm. before, you know, if a vampire bat goes a few days without food, it's in a bad place. It can it can starve. Um, And so sharing food like this is a significant sacrifice for the good of another uh, not necessarily related bat. And you have to ask yourself, would your friends and coworkers be selfless enough to vomit up blood in your mouth if you'd missed a meal? None of them have ever offered, and it makes me feel rather sour. (laughs) (laughs) But it's not even just the mammals, right? We see classic altruistic behaviors in in, uh, animals that are thought of as less complex, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, bees are a prime example of altruism. I mean, mean, you social insects in general have pretty much perfected altruism in many respects. So a worker bee works for the benefit of the queen's offspring while forgoing reproduction herself. Genetically speaking, she is not the genetic future of the hive. The queen is. The drones are. But the workers do all the work. In a weird way, you can almost think about the insects like this being that the queen is the organism and the worker bees are like fingers or appendages of the major organism. Yeah, exactly. And it's just completely, you know, completely selfless if you look at it from the right angle. Yeah. But how about birds? too? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, ravens, who uh, we've talked about ravens a bit when we talked about bird intelligence. Uh, uh, ravens have been observed to call in additional ravens when they happen upon food. So like a, you know, a, a mouse or something, mm-hmm. which doesn't make any sense that they have it. But they have apparently have a special call that they use. So they, they raise the alarm and say, hey, other ravens that are not me or my children, mm-hmm. come in here and get part of this mouse. Why would you do that? It, 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 it doesn't seem to make sense. Uh, but some ravens even return to their roost and recruit more eaters to come and share in the feast. Yet again, so your friends and coworkers, they've never offered to vomit blood in your mouth. They've also probably never offered to share a dead mouse with you. Well, no, but on the rare, uh, on the, on the instances where we've had catered dead mouse, uh, <laughs> then certainly people will come around and say, hey, there's food, uh, on the question mark table. Come and eat with us, so. Well, that's just their moral philosophy or their religion or whatever. <laughs> All right. Well, we have some some other just quick examples throughout. Dolphins and elephants are fairly complex social animals and display uh, uh, so, uh, various forms of altruism. Uh, they form social bonds and they, they seem to make conscious decisions to help members of their group. Yeah, and so we have all these examples. These are by far not the only examples. Mm-hmm. There are just tons of documented examples of animals in the wild or in lab conditions seeming to help other animals who are not their direct offspring at their own at their own expense. Yeah. And obviously we can see why evolution would select for genes that cause organisms to be altruistic toward their own children, right? That's kind of the whole point. Your genes optimize your body to have lots of children that can carry as many copies of those genes into the future as possible. 
But why would evolution produce creatures that sacrifice some of their own safety or resources to help save another creature that wasn't their direct offspring? I mean, wouldn't wouldn't genes that promoted selfishness and cowardice produce the most grandchildren on average? Well, I mean, one obvious answer here is that there's an individual survival advantage in groups, right? Right. The the group kind of becomes the meta-organism, and and natural selection encourages the pro-group members of the meta-organism and not not the lone wolves. Now, this is a tempting direction to go in, but there are critics of this type of thinking. So lots of scientists have tried to go in this direction, including E.O. Wilson in later years. Uh, And this is sort of related to the concept known as group selection, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that natural selection selection can select for not just the survival of individual genes or the survival of individual organisms, but groups of organisms together. This is also known as multi-level selection. But like I mentioned, this idea has a lot of harsh critics, uh, including uh, Dawkins. I mean, he's criticized this idea. And here's one potential snag. It's true that teamwork pays off, right? But you know what pays off even more than teamwork? Letting other people do the teamwork. Ah, uh, this is the this is the classic um, um, uh, classroom situation where you've been assigned to groups, uh-huh. and you're going to have somebody in the group who's a real hard worker, very dedicated. Uh-huh. You can have some other individuals, and you're going to have at least one person who's just going to coast, right? Right. Yeah. So you let the rest of the team do the work while you sandbag and reap the rewards. So if imagine if you got wild dogs mm-hmm. that have a gene that causes cooperative pack hunting behavior, where Every dog chips in and does their share of work in the hunt, and in turn, this increases the group's chances of catching prey, and then they all share the benefits. That would be great. Everything's going great if you've got dogs with those genes. But then one of the dogs in the pack acquires a mutation that says, actually, don't help with the hunt. Just hang around until your pack mates catch something and then show up and plunge your face into that delicious viscera. (laughs) A dog with this trait would spend less energy hunting and it would risk less injury and it would still get the rewards of the hunt. So it would ultimately benefit more than any of the team players. And on average, that that freeloader dog would have more offspring, meaning that over time, the freeloader gene would become more common than the team player gene and the pack hunting system would sort of fall apart. So systems that rely on benefits of group cooperation for the sake of the group as a whole are sort of pervasively undermined by the interests of individual organisms and individual genes within the group, which will sort of inevitably find ways to run counter to the success of the group as a whole. So to sum up, we can show that in general, natural selection will tend to push organisms to favor their own success at the expense of others and at the expense of their groups. And yet, at the same time, group cooperation and selflessness is present in nature. So there must be some way to reconcile these observations, right? Yes, and I imagine this is where the the green beard comes in. Well, the green beard is going to be one weird way of branching off of this question. Actually, the main answers to this question are not going to be the focus of today's episode, but we should mention them. So two of the main answers that emerged in the 20th century to answer this question are what's known as kin selection and what's known as reciprocal altruism. So reciprocal altruism is basically uh, another way of summing it up is just the phrase tit for tat. 
And while in many cases it can be hard to verify outside of lab conditions, you can sort of build models of organisms that behave on this principle. And it does appear to be stable if uh, – and the way this works is like this. So if a member of the pack is mean to you or if they try to cheat and be selfish, you repay them back the same way. You're mean to them back. You, you, you don't share with them. But if another member of the pack is nice to you, you're nice back. So essentially you just mirror – you start with the basis of being nice and then you mirror the ba- – uh, you mirror the behavior that people display toward you. Okay, well that that makes sense. I think everybody can fall fall behind that. Yeah, and if you run models like this, it is mathematically stable. Genes that encourage this type of behavior don't tend to get eliminated from the gene pool, but they can reach a kind of stable equilibrium. But the other main idea is what's known as kin selection, and this was explored in the 1960s by the English biologist we mentioned earlier, W.D. Hamilton. Now, uh, Hamilton used these quantitative genetics modeling methods, which is like math about how genes are inherited and distributed, to show something interesting. It makes mathematical sense for genes to optimize for altruism toward blood relatives other than our own offspring. So it turns out that for a sexually reproducing species like us, you share the same percent of your genes with each of your children that you do with your full brothers and sisters and with your parents. In each case, you share 50% of your genes with them. And to a lesser extent, the same goes for other members of your family further removed. You'll share more genes with your aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews than you do with the general population and so forth. And given this calculus, you can work out how genes that direct organisms to be generous and altruistic toward family members become more numerous in the gene pool than genes that direct organisms to be exclusively selfish and unhelpful to anybody. So if I have a cousin that appears on America's Got Talent, Mm -hmm. I'm going to root for them in part because they share more of my genes than anybody else that's a contestant on that show. I mean, on average, they probably do. You might have like a secret unknown brother or sister (laughs) on there. But yeah, yeah, on average, that's going to be the case. Now, and of course, there are lots of weird ways that maybe things like kin selection or reciprocal altruism – uh, could be could be sort of modified in various circumstances to generate the mechanisms that create altruism that get applied in other ways. Uh, but it is in the context of discussing this this whole question about altruism and biology in the selfish gene that Dawkins also came up with this weird hypothetical idea for one weird type of selective altruism, the green beard. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back. We will join back up with Captain Greenbeard <laughs> and discuss the details of, uh, of, of this idea. All right, we're back. So we were mentioning how the name of the Greenbeard gene uh, comes from an example given by Richard Dawkins in The Selfish Gene in 1976. So Dawkins is pointing out how any arbitrary gene will become more numerous if it makes carriers of that gene friendly and helpful toward other carriers, right? And that sort of makes sense. It says, like, if you've got gene A in your body, gene A does especially well if it makes your body give food and, and you know, nice behavior toward other carriers of gene A, right? It's just a boost for gene A across the board. 
So he starts talking about the example of uh, of the gene for albinism, which is a genetic condition that causes the carrier to have unusually low levels of the pigment melanin, leading to paleness of skin, hair, and eyes. And hypothetically, a really successful version of this gene for albino traits would not only produce the visible traits, but it would motivate a carrier to be helpful toward other people who have these visible traits. Now, keep in mind, this is not how the albino traits work in in reality. This is mm-hmm. just a hypothetical alternate version of them. Um, and if this were to exist, that way everyone who has this particular gene would have more offspring and the gene would become even more abundant. But would we find something like that in nature? That's the question. And Dawkins writes the following, quote, It is theoretically possible that a gene could arise which conferred an externally visible label, say a pale skin or a green beard or anything (laughs) conspicuous, and also a tendency to be specially nice to bearers of that conspicuous label. It is possible, but not particularly likely. Green beardedness is just as likely to be linked to a tendency to develop ingrown toenails or any other trait, and a fondness for green beards is just as likely to go together with an inability to smell freesias. It is not very probable that one and the same gene would produce both the right label and the right sort of altruism. Nevertheless, what may be called the green beard altruism effect is a theoretical possibility. So this is where the green beard idea comes from. And and to be clear, Dawkins is not saying that he expected to find anything like this in nature, right? I mean, it would be a, it would be a tough sell to say that there's just one gene or one tightly linked group of genes that does all that work. It's got to produce the externally detectable trait. It's got to detect that trait in other people. And it's got to make you especially nice or in some way manage a positive interaction with other people who have that externally detectable trait. And uh, so so he wasn't saying you'd expect to find it, just that it was an interesting hypothetical possibility. Like he's saying it's possible that the murder was committed in the library with the candlestick by Colonel Mustard. With a green beard. By Colonel Verdure <laughs> Beard. <laughs> but uh, but it's just a, a hypothetical situation. Yeah. And one thing, one that would be difficult to come about, but if it did exist, it would be encouraged by natural selection, right? Mm-hmm. He's sort of pointing out how natural selection would favor this. You just wouldn't expect it to arise in the first place. Right. But nature is stranger than our imagination. Ah, and this is where we get into... Actual examples in nature yes. of the green beard. So this was not what we originally expected, right? I mean, right. geneticists didn't think that you'd, you'd discover things like this in nature. But, man, the natural world's always surprising us. Yeah. So let's meet a species, Solenopsis invicta. It sounds pretty serious. It sounds pretty, uh, pretty indomitable. Yeah. It's like the, it's like the, you know, the Roman emperor <laughs> species. And it kind of is because that is the, the name of the red imported fire ant, which is native to South America. It has spread everywhere from Australia to Asia, the United States. It's all over the place now. And woe to us for that fact. Uh, they were first introduced to the United States sometime in the 1930s or 40s, and now they are known as an invasive pest with hot needle venom and a ferocious fighting response when their nests are disturbed. In fact, uh, in our episode about the biophilia hypothesis, we talked about that great video of E.O. Wilson trudging through the woods until he finds a red fire ant nest and shoving his hand <laughs> into it so he can show you how much it hurts. 
Oh yes, this this wonderful footage. I love that he just he stirs them up, lets them crawl on his hand, lets them sting him, and almost it's like a religious moment for him. Yeah, right? he's so happy about it. Yeah, if only people in general could find something that they love <laughs> as much as this man loves these ants that are furiously pumping their venom into his body. <laughs> Anyway, another perhaps interesting thing about these fire ants, they exist in two subpopulations. So they've got, uh, so they've got this species and then two subpopulations have very distinct ways of making a living. One tolerates only one queen per colony mm-hmm. and the other has multiple queens per colony. Interesting. Huh? Uh, and those are known as the, the monogyne versus the polygyne types. Uh, you know, one, one queen and multiple queens. So in 1998, Laurent Keller and Kenneth G. Ross published an interesting report in Nature about Solenopsis Invicta. And Keller and Ross were studying red fire ants of the polygyne v- variety. That's the kind that has multiple queens. So within the genome of these polygyne Solenopsis Invicta, there is a gene locus called GP9, and a couple of terms to explain real quick. In genetics, a locus is just the location on a chromosome where you know you can look to find something, where you know you can look to find a gene or one of its alleles. And alleles are uh, variable forms of a gene appearing at the same locus. So for a simple example, at the locus QX1, uh, you might contain a gene that regulates the speed at which your toenails grow. And if you have one allele at QX1, your toenails grow fast. And if you've got a different allele at QX1, your toenails grow slow. Okay. Now back to the fire ants. They've got this gene locus called GP9 with two alleles, big B and little b. And because they have two sets of chromosomes, the ants can have three different types of arrangements at GP9. They can have big B, big B, big B, little b, or little b, little b. Okay. All right. Now, if you were to watch these colonies up close where a new queen reaches sexual uh, maturity and starts trying to mate and lay eggs, you'd notice something weird. Only the queens with the two different alleles, the big B, little b genes at GP9, live long enough to reproduce. Why is that? What happens to Hmm. the others? So first, it appears that queens with little b, little b die very young of natural complications. This just appears to be a lethal recessive combination. And we see this a lot of times in nature where if you've got two copies of this re- recessive gene, it's it's bad news for you and it can lead to a genetic condition that kills you. Right. But what happens to the big B, big B queens? Well, Keller and Ross found out they get violently executed by their oh. own workers. The ants of the colony tear their soul apart. <laughs> oh. So furthermore, they discovered that it was primarily workers bearing the little b allele that did the dirty work of killing the queens without it. So if you've got a queen that's big b, big b, the workers that have a little b allele will surround it, bite it, and kill it. Because it is, it's essentially, in some respects, it's like a foreign queen. It, it does not share uh, the, the same uh, uh, alleles as it does. Yeah, that's what appears to be going on. But how how does that happen? I mean, normally you wouldn't be able to look at somebody and say, you're missing one particular <laughs> gene that I have and mm-hmm. I'm going to kill you. So what's going on? 
so the worker ants with that little b gene at GP9 tend to violently massacre any potential queens that don't carry the little b gene at GP9. Uh, so it, it sounds like we might have a slightly modified version of the green beard gene on our hands. But here's a question. How, how do those workers know when the new queen has the right allele or not? Here's a clue. The authors noticed that sometimes after a worker ant took part in a mob executing a big B, big B queen, the worker ant would then be attacked by other ants in the colony. Huh. Hmm. So you take part in the mob. You kill that big B, big B queen. Then you walk away. Then other worker ants kill you. And you know, it, and there's no politics in the insect world, so you know it's not just some sort of a situation where the assassin has to uh, absorb the blame for the regicide. Right, right, uh, right. It's not like the Kingslayer is now being, you know, talked mm-hmm. to me. Like, so wh- wh- what was going on? You have to wonder, was something rubbing off mm-hmm. on the killer worker? And this led the authors to suspect the culprit is pheromone-based. So they tested this by rubbing worker ants against two different types of queens, the big B, big B queens and the big B, little B queens, and then releasing those workers to their colleagues. And sure enough, the uh, the other workers tended to attack the ants that had been rubbed against the doom big B, big B queens, but not against the queens with a copy of the little B allele. Hmm. So to know that we're looking at an actual green beard gene, we got to remember the gene should be doing three things. It's got to produce an externally detectable trait. It's got to detect that trait in other individuals. And it's got to provide preferential treatment to individuals bearing that trait. So it looks like maybe uh, maybe what's going on here is this. Ants with the little B gene at GP9 will attack and kill anything that smells like a sexually mature queen Unless it also carries the chemical signature generated by the little b gene, which switches off that kill drive in the workers. Interesting. Okay. So this looks like, if these findings are correct, a genuine green beard gene found in nature. There's this one gene or some incredibly tightly linked group of genes uh, going off uh, the GP9 locus that says, if the queen doesn't have this one gene, killer. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we have some more possible examples of the green beard uh, gene uh, going on, and we will talk about the wood mouse and the sperm train. All right, we're back. So, Robert, you promised before we left that you were going to tell me about sperm trains. Yes. Uh, so, I'm going to going to go ahead and, and back up here a little bit for everybody before we get into just you know full on with the sperm train. If you were like us, then you've probably read and viewed a great deal of science content about sperm over the years. Uh, this is a topic that pops up in nature documentaries, science news articles, and seemingly endless academic papers. Well, the sperm, it, it kind of creates a microcosm of the whole natural world, right? Yeah, it is because, uh, you know, it's a situation where when, when the, the the sperm are competing against each other to go after the goal, uh-huh. that's happening on the inside. Uh, on the outside, of course, we have all of these various uh, uh, mating competition scenarios that factor into our nature documentaries, you know, where different males are competing mm-hmm. uh, to mate with uh, the female or multiple males mating with the female, what have you. Uh, so it's interesting that we have kind of this outer war of uh, mating war going on, and then mm-hmm. there is an inner mating war as well. 
Because we have all these uh, examples of, of sperm uh, uh, playing a role in this outer war. We, we learn uh, you know, the, the violent details of copulation and how sometimes they can deter females from acquiring additional males. Um, there's uh, also uh, the, the interesting hypothesis re- regarding kamikaze uh, spermatozoa in rats and humans with the hypothetical uh, primary f- uh, function in these particular uh, sperm of incapacitating sperm of a rival male. Whoa. Yeah, it was kind of like dogfighting sperm. Uh, or it also makes me think of, say, a miniature Star Wars uh, space battle taking place inside. <laughs> and the, the egg is quite ironically, the Death Star, maybe well, the Life Star. Well, yeah, if you're a sperm, you don't want to blow up the egg. You want to join in harmony with the egg. Well, yeah, but 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 you, the one individual sperm wants to do it. Right. And it's, it's, it's a race. It's a competition. Life Star. I like that. Yeah. Now, you kind of grow used to this trend, right? There's competition, ruthless aggression. Sperm is the life-seeking missiles uh, at war with their rivals. Uh, multiple matings uh, result in sperm competition and even mixed paternity. Uh, but sperm are also competing against all of their, their brethren. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, it's a bit shocking when you realize that there are cases of sperm cooperation. Hmm. So most examples of uh, this occurs in the, let's face it, freaky world of mollusks, uh, <laughs> okay. as well as the, the aforementioned politics-free realm of insects. But there's actually uh, an example in the mammal realm as well, as demonstrated in the 2002 paper, and I love this title, Exceptional Sperm Co- Cooperation in the Woodmouse. Exceptional. A-plus sperm cooperation. Yes. So the woodmouse. This is a, you know, a Western European rodent. It's small. But it has tremendous sperm output. Uh, the mice in general, uh, they, they have rather large testes. Testes are, are 5% of their body. And if we were, uh, if this were the case with humans, to put that in perspective, a male human would have 7.7 pounds or 3.5 kilograms of testes. <laughs> so these, uh, the, the fact that they're oversexed, it would seem, uh, this is helpful because they engage in, quote, scramble competition uh, to mate uh, polygamously with promiscuous females. As such, uh, you would expect a lot of sperm competition going on there. Yeah, race to the life star. Yeah. And this is where the train comes in. Because okay. uh, the wood mouse sperm feature, quote, extremely long apical hooks. Huh. And they use these hooks to form together into a sort of, sort of think of it as a sperm Voltron. <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, as the paper puts it, uh, motile trains of spermatozoa comprising uh, uh, hundreds to several thousands of cells. These trains, these sort of you know hooked together uh, you know wheels of sperm, uh, these trains allow the bound sperm to travel at greater speeds, uh, up to fi- you know fifty percent faster than lone sperm out there going it on their own. But as they do that, they got to be given a leg up to these other sperm that they're in competition with. That's the thing, because ultimately only one sperm can get in there. But they're they're all working together. It's it makes me think of these scenarios where a bunch of villains team up, uh, and then they're all going to turn in, turn on each other at the end. But for a little while, they're working together, like a Sinister Six situation, right? I thought you were going to say Suicide Squad. Well, I, I guess that's a similar example. They're all villains, right? Are they? I didn't so see untold. It. I, I I didn't see it. I I tried to check it out on HBO uh, to see what everyone was talking about. I made it I made it just about like five minutes in, uh, but maybe it's a great film. I could be wrong. <laughs> so in in these cases, the hookup occurs one to two minutes after ejaculation, and that's when 
head-to-head or tail, uh, tail-to-head uh, hookups occur. So they have hooks on their heads as well in this scenario. But again, only one sperm may enter the life star. It's, it's, it's like the scene with the, you know, trying to shoot the bolts into the death star. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the train starts to decouple about 20 to 30 minutes after forming. And in doing this, many of the individual sperms seem to sacrifice themselves. And, uh, and some might be even marked for death ahead of time, or there might be competition there at the end. So again, think of a group of supervillains. They've, uh, they've worked together so far, but after they kill the Batman or the Superman, they're just going to turn on each other. So how do the researchers connect this to the idea of the Greenbeard gene? Uh, well, this is what they say. Quote, a Greenbeard gene might uh, evoke such cellular cooperation, all, although other genetic mechanisms cannot be excluded at this stage. A Greenbeard uh, is a gene that recognizes copies of itself and other individuals and directs benefits to those individuals. So the idea here is that the, the Greenbeard gene would be the deciding factor with which uh, sperm you're going to team up with ah. in this battle. Because you certainly are not going to want to hook up with sperm from other uh, individual um, uh, mice that have mated with this particular female. Right. Interesting. So, yeah. the, so they're saying this could be one explanation of the, the behavior they're seeing here. Yeah, this is Life Race 2000. Uh-huh. <laughs> All the cars are heading out. But some of these cars are realizing that they can work together and form a train uh, to, uh, to, uh, to outmaneuver and, and, uh, and, and outperform their competitors. Because some of the cars have exact copies of the driver in each one. Yeah, like multiple Frankensteins. <laughs> That was a deep cut. Yeah, we yeah. might have scared somebody off there. Roger Corman's uh, Death Race 2000. If you want to want to get all of that. Okay, so that's another. So there really does appear to be a, a green beer. You know, if the observations are correct, there really does appear to be a green beer gene working in the fire ants. Uh, it looks like green beard genes are a good candidate to explain what's going on here in the uh, sperm trains, but it's not a sure thing. Other mechanisms mm-hmm. might explain it. Right. In 2008, I, I should just mention quickly, there was uh, one paper that seemed to identify a green beard gene that was driving cooperation uh, in yeast cells, and the, that gene was called FLO1. But just recently, I was reading about how there is apparently green beard gene activity in slime molds, our old friends. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Th- this was uh, pretty interesting. So to refresh... Slime molds, which uh, which I like to compare to science itself at times. I think uh, it's a good metaphor for it. Slime molds are microbes that live as single-celled organisms, but they, they kind of Voltron together into a great communal meta-organism that quests after food. It's a two-Voltron episode. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, there's some fabulous experiments that show the sort of communal intelligence that it has. Yeah. Like a very non non non-human uh, form of intelligence so right. sort of problem solving ability yeah maze solving right yeah well in march of this year geneticists from uh, the universities of manchester and bath discovered that these individual cells are capable of choosing who they join forces with so it's not just you know every um, slime mold uh, individual is going to come together like they're going to be a little bit choosy, mm-hmm. and uh, and it seems that green beard genes uh, factor into it. Oh, okay. So you're a slime mold cell, and you've got this one gene that says mm-hmm. if there's another slime slime mold cell that has this same gene, join with them and conquer the maze. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's, so it's pretty straightforward in that regard. The, the gene in question encodes a molecule on the surface of a slime mold cell, 
and it can bind to the same molecule of another slime mold cell. Now, most my slime molds uh, strains have a unique version of the gene. Okay. Now, there's a great deal of diversity in slime uh, mold greenbeard genes, according to the study, but individuals show a preference for cells with like or similar uh, greenbeard genes. And the, uh, the, the assembled whole, the resulting, you know, larger metaorganism slime mold, um, it actually performs better, it does better, if it's formed of preferred partners uh, as opposed to, you know, non-preferred partners. As such, uh, these greenbeard genes seem to govern a particular specific cooperative behavior in the slime molds. So the way it works is it just makes you sticky for other slime mold cells that have this same gene. Yeah, basically. Like on yeah. a very it's it's kind of just like the really Velcro gloves. Yeah, it's like the simplified version of why liking the same band uh you know binds you to somebody else. Mm-hmm. So uh, to to summarize uh, <laughs> uh, going off the paper here, uh the the greenbeard genes achieve the following in the slime mold. So they predict partner-specific patterns of cooperation by underlying variation in partner-specific protein-protein binding strength and recognition specificity. Uh, They also increase fitness because they help avoid potential costs of cooperating with incompatible partners. Oh, okay. Uh, And uh, also they generate a uh, homophilic binding spectrum that allows individuals to identify appropriate partners with whom to engage in cooperation. Hmm. And it, sta- that it also serves to stabilize cooperation in the face of selective pressure for the emergence of, quote, false bearded cheaters Whoa. by providing information that can be used to differentiate uh, compatible from incompatible partners. So this is a new ripple. This is a new yeah. ripple. So we started with this hypothetical idea that uh, Hamilton and Dawkins talked about saying that it's – not necessarily going to be found in nature. It's just one hypothetical thing that could work if it ever were to arise. Uh-huh. Now we're finding examples of it in nature, the green beard gene, the gene that says, hey, I see you have this gene too. I like you. I'm going to treat you right. Mm-hmm. But now we see that there are false beard pretenders. Yeah. You could have a gene that in fact signals the same thing as having the gene or something that could easily trick you into thinking they have the gene, but they don't have it. Well, you know, I'm reminded of the slime mold moving through the maze. It's, you know, our scientific uh, uh, quest to understand uh, the universe. So anytime we find something new, there's always some new ripple, some new complication, uh, and, and, it, it, uh, and some new level to the complexity of life. So what is the, uh, what is the, the liking the same band equivalent of the false bearded cheaters? Is somebody who you think signals liking the same band, but in fact they do not really like them. Is that the the fake tool fans you were talking about at the beginning? Maybe, or maybe a better example would be like the, there might be a band that was really popular, and you dig them. Mm-hmm. Somebody else doesn't really. They're not. They're not a true fan. They just they're maybe a little nostalgic for it, or they remember listening to this band in high school. But where have they been? Uh, you know, the, the subsequent decades. So they've got the bumper sticker on the back of their car. But if you started talking to them, you would find that the compatibility you were seeking is not real. It's all superficial. Right. Or maybe it's. Uh, it also reminds me. I think it was a, a Kids in the Hall skit where somebody's trying to buy a copy of The Doors' Greatest Hits at a CD store, <laughs> and this guy comes in and lectures and is like, no, you have to start with the first album, and then you have to listen to it. Like, There's very specific instructions about where you listen to it, how long you listen to it, 
And, and then only then can you move on to the second album and you have to go in order. So he's instructing <laughs> him how to be a true long-term fan and not like a cheap skip to the greatest hits fan. How to be a true pretentious jerk. Yeah. Do pretentious <laughs> jerks glom onto each other in the same way that Greenbeard slime mold cells do? I don't know, or maybe I mean I guess they do, but you could also argue that they they, they don't have the binding factor. They're just too pretentious about their their stuff. They can't actually enjoy it with other people because they have to be the they have to be the biggest fan in the room. They have to be the smartest fan in the room. But I don't. We're getting into the the human complexities here of uh, of, of sharing and things. I think we've run wild with our metaphors and we've <laughs> gone off the deep end. Anyway, picking up uh, from our intro to this episode where we had to lay the context about the the discussion about altruism and biology mm-hmm. and the idea about the different levels of selection. I've been thinking, though, this would be daunting because it makes biologists uh, ruffle their feathers and, and get very upset. I think maybe in the future we should try to do a big episode or maybe a two-parter on the levels of selection debate in biology, hmm. like uh, the, this big controversy over whether group selection is a real thing or not. Uh, or whether, uh, whether, uh, there, there's also arguments about the arguments, like whether the argument is real or whether it's just semantic. <laughs> um, and so it, I think, it, I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there, but I know it's a big, thorny, controversial issue that has a lot of, uh, uh petty sub issues. Hmm. Well, no, that could be fun. I mean, who knows? Maybe that's an, a topic that it would be, uh, it would be sensible to bring in a guest to help us navigate all the controversies. Well, maybe we'd need to bring two two guests, one that take each side. <laughs> ah, and then we turn into a debate show. But we're not. We're not going to do that. <laughs> well, anyway, if that's something you would like to hear, maybe you should let us know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Hey, before we close out here, uh, this is uh, one of the first episodes that we're recording after the total solar eclipse here in North America, uh, and as previously stated, uh, you went up to Tennessee yep. to, to check it out, to, to be within the line of totality. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I went up to uh, Blue Ridge, uh, Georgia, in the, the North Georgia mountains, mm-hmm. and uh, observed it as well. So what are your thoughts? It was, it was amazing. Yeah. I, I was trying to uh, convince everyone that we should go up to the path of totality. And they were like, but hey, isn't it like 98% totality here in Atlanta? And I was trying to explain the difference between <laughs> like 99.9 and 100% is is apparently huge. And I'm glad we went. I'm glad we did it. It's uh, – I don't want to sound flip when I say this, but it it was a religious experience. I mean it was a really – truly astonishing thing. I've never seen anything like it before. It was amazing watching all the different physical changes going on around us as the totality approached. Uh, there was this moment where it was probably about as the sun was about 75 percent covered, maybe a little bit more, that I started to notice that there was still still the appearance of sunlight all around me. Mm-hmm. So it was like a bright summer day. But suddenly there was I didn't feel the heat anymore. The sunlight felt cool and I could stand in the direct sun and my skin didn't have that uh, that radiation reaction it normally does when you're standing out in the direct sunlight. There – I don't know. The colors became so strange as it came on and then once the totality hit, it was true what I read in advance that said, you know, it can feel like it's over in seconds. It totally did. I was just standing there gaping at it and then – I after almost no time at all, it was over. Yeah, I was really impressed by it as well. Like, I mean, aside from just the 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 actual spectacle 
of the full eclipse, just mm-hmm. seeing the the ring there in the sky. Uh, you know, all the subtle stuff was very, in, in a way, unnerving, and 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 it felt like you were kind of crossing over into a you know an abnormal realm because the you had this sense that it was uh, it was dusk, mm-hmm. but there was no sunset on the horizon. You know. Uh, there was this, uh, this also, uh, I, I certainly observed the changes in the animals because I was in the, the, the forest in the mountains. So the cicadas all died down. Suddenly the cicadas stopped making the, their noises and the crickets started up. Yeah, I observed that too. Uh, up in Tennessee, we heard the, the nighttime insects begin to whir to life. Mm-hmm. Another thing. Oh, and I, we saw moths as well. Like suddenly there were moths flying around. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I got to see, because I, I knew in advance to look to the west, like mm-hmm. we talked about in our eclipse episode, there were some clouds in the sky to the west of where we were. And I, I kept my eyes focused to the west right as the uh, the last of the Bailey's beads were fading mm-hmm. and as it was coming on. And I saw the shadow pass over the clouds to Ooh, the west nice. of us. And it was so cool to see. Like we had white clouds and then suddenly black straight over them. And of course, everyone experienced the the drop in temperature. Yeah. But uh, we also witnessed what I believe was you know weather changes because of that because the it was a little bit cloudy and the clouds were on the just teasing with the, us with the possibility of obscuring the uh, the, the total eclipse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it held off. But then right after the eclipse occurred and was uh, and and um, and the, the moon was beginning to to move out of the way of get away again, uh, there was this. Um, Suddenly, a lot of cloud uh, uh, cover moved in, mm-hmm. and then it almost immediately started raining. Yeah, I think we had some strange weather the rest of the day. Oh, how about your dog, Charlie? Uh, was he there? No, we left him at home. Oh, okay. I We thought about bringing him, uh, but the place we were going was uh, it was a college campus up mm-hmm. in up in Tennessee. We didn't know how many people would be there, and we didn't want him to get upset if there was a big crowd. Um, so we, we just left him at home, and he was fine. Okay. Well, uh, my, my son came. He really enjoyed it. It was, it was just a great experience. So, uh, and I know that I reached out on the Facebook on social media. A number of our followers there, our listeners there, they they chimed in. Uh, those that uh, that either experienced the, the the partial or the the total eclipse, mm-hmm. uh, and certainly we'd love to hear from anybody else who has uh, you know particular observations about how the environment reacted or or how you reacted to the total eclipse. Uh, you know, we would love to hear your experience as well. One last thought. Photos don't do it justice. Yeah. Absolutely not. I mean, I'd seen uh, tons of photos of past solar eclipses, but it's not like seeing it in person for yourself. So if you ever get a chance in the future, if you want to, you know, if you're in South America or you want to fly to where one of those total eclipses in upcoming years is coming, or if you're in the United States and you just want to go ahead and start planning for 2024 – it's really worth it. It's something unlike anything else you'll see in your life. Indeed. All right. Hey, in the meantime, waiting for the as you wait for the next episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind to come out, head on over to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes, including our episode uh, on the uh, on the, the the solar eclipse the, that came out in the last uh, week or two. Be sure to check that out. Uh, also, you'll find links out to all our various social media accounts, such as uh, Instagram, Twitter, um, Tumblr, and Facebook. Hey, and on Facebook, we have a group now, the discussion module. Uh, be sure to check that out because that's a great place to have more long-form discussions uh, with other listeners and uh, and sometimes uh, the, the hosts as well. And you can also 
also just bring up like cool ideas, cool articles, etc. And there'll be some uh, some other like-minded individuals to to bounce that off of. And hey, if you want to get in touch with us directly, as always, the old-fashioned way, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.